going to get Dr. Dan Eddy to come and join us now. He is the author of the, the great book, The Football Genius, The Pete Hudson Story. It is out now. He'll give us all the, de- the selling details. Dan, good evening. Park your essence and leave us aside for a few minutes. And welcome to Hawks Inside. <laughs> Thanks for having me, Ashley. Sorry, Fiona, that you've had to go on hold for this, but uh, hopefully, uh, <laughs> hopefully you enjoy hearing about the great man. So, so um, first I want to ask you, you're, uh, you're a noted football historian, the official Essen historian and, uh, and uh, a diehard of that footy club, but you really enjoy writing about Hawthorne. What it is about Hawthorne that is a, a great writing subject for you? I think the era, the era I'm, I've been writing about with, with Peter Crimmins tying into um, Peter Hudson, you know, that 60s, 70s period, it's such an amazing period for the club with so much happening. It must have been... One of the most dynamic places in Melbourne to be at the time was to be a Glenferry Oval. So I've always been fascinated in the in the key characters from that uh, that period. And obviously, Crimo was such a heart and soul player. And then, um, well, everyone loves Hutto, so uh, it's it's sort of uh, it's it's sort of blended into each other, which has been fantastic. How generous the subject was! He was everything on the. I mean, he's, he's never a controversial figure, Hutto. I mean, that was everything on the table for it. Uh, everything was, yeah, and you know what Pete's like. He'll he'll find a way to uh, find a positive in anything, really. So uh, yeah, that's why I um, I made my way around to a good hundred and fifty odd people just to, just to get the real story. But Pete gave me some great insights. I was able to hopefully ask him a few questions that he hadn't been asked before, and just get some insights into why he did what he did and and how he handled you know some of the controversial stuff like the the merger period and things like that. So it was great to. Um, Great to uh, have open access and to all his archives as well. He's got a his mum and dad kept an amazing collection, thankfully. So uh, I was able to delve into all that too. Yeah, I, I mean, as I'm reading the moment, and at the bottom of the page on the notes of the Hudson family scrapbooks, they must have extensively chronicled his career and kept everything. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, I was very lucky with with Crimo that his parents li- literally kept every single thing you could find on Peter. So that made it. A lot easier for me to, to research, and it's pretty much the same with Hutto. Um, his mum was a meticulous keeper of everything, and um, it's, yeah, it's a gold mine. Just little snippets of information from Tassie, in particular, that I might not have known where to where to dig that up. So it was it was fantastic, and he's he's got a million photos in his collection, and he's um, yeah. So thank God that um, Molly and Bob Hudson were were on the case from the from early days. Dan, uh, just a question. I, I guess, firstly, thank you as a Hawthorne supporter being able to get deep dives in, into the legends of our football club. Yeah, it's, it's just incredible. Um, we had a chat with Tony Wilson last year about 1989, and um, obviously he's got Hawthorne blood. He talked about the emotional connection that you have when you're writing about uh, these guys and, and these subjects. How is that for you with, you know, with doing the Crimo book and now, Hutto, how emotionally invested do you become in in the story? Yeah, and, and 89 was a brilliant book. Um, yeah, I um, I live it. I, it's almost like an extension of family for me. I, I really try and delve into it as much as possible. I, I try and walk in their shoes. So in Hutto's case, it was travelling to Tassie and, and finding all the little spots where he grew up and where things happened and, and getting his schoolmates to show me around and, and that sort of thing, just to really understand where he would have hung out, where where 
everything sort of where he developed his his talent. And I did the same with Crimo. You know, I I was able to go up to Shepparton and really delve into where where he hung out as a kid and where that started to form. And it, it just you can look at Google Maps and you can sort of get an idea of where things are. But to actually go and walk in their shoes, I, I find really really helpful. And um, yeah, as my Son and my family would know. Uh, Peter Hudson becomes part of the the family story when I'm researching him because I I really do um, live it. It feels like twenty four seven. I'm just you, you're never not thinking about a different angle to come from or a different person to speak to or you know another source of um, information to try and track down. So um, I love it, uh, which is a good thing. Otherwise, uh, you'd have nightmares over Hutto because you think about him so much, but. Uh, now, hopefully that comes out in, in the way I present the book. Dan, you, you, being a, you, you, you studied Peter Hudson extensively uh, for the book. You, an Essendon, as you mentioned, an Essendon uh, supporter, deep Essendon supporter. One of the great tragedies of football, and I, use, I don't like using the word tragedy with football, but in this instance it's nearly right, is it two of the all-time grateful forwards. We, we, we never saw them play really extensive, long careers. Do you ever sort of do the sliding doors and imagine how it would have been if one or both of Hudson and Coleman had gone through their entire careers without serious Definitely. Injury? I mean, they both went down at 25. Uh, thankfully, Hutto was able to come back. But 25, you're at, he's just kicked 150 goals and he's probably still entering his peak years as a full forward. So you, you do have the what-ifs and you speak to supporters and you speak to teammates and, and they all say, you know, what, what could have happened in those gap years at Hawthorne. Uh, he went back to Tassie and ended up kicking a lot of goals. But in terms of his VFL career, you're right, um, the what-if. And, and the what-if extends to, you know, potential Hawthorne premierships, you know, that they, they're thereabouts for a few years as they try and find a new way forward. Um, and you wonder if Hutto's there, whether you, you add a couple more flags to the story. So there is that what if. And and Pete says himself, the day he does his knee, um, he was he was confident that he was going to equal or beat Fred Fanning's 18-goal record in a game. He had eight up till just before half time. He took a mark to go back for a ninth, but uh, did the knee. And he said, if I could have... If I could have got to the end of that game and then done both knees, I would have been okay because I reckon I would have got that record. So he was he was he was absolutely at the peak of his powers, and that's the that's a tragedy. But thankfully, we got to see him um, play on after that eventually. But uh, yeah, the the what ifs you you wonder how many more goals he could have kicked. I reckon Hawthorne win the flag in seventy two, but if if he plays, but that a Hawthorne team with Hudson against. Carlton and Richmond those years were both pretty, I know you're, that's your new specialty mm. subject. Uh, Carlton, Richmond 72, but both power teams. Chuck Hawthorne in against those and uh, gee, it would have been a good final series. And, and even you'll talk to some Gilda people who reckon they were at their peak in 72 as well. Yeah. So having lost to Hawthorne the year before, so good, that would have been and, and Yeah, in 74, lose the prelim by five points without Crimo, Hutto and uh might be John Hendry or or Knighty or someone. So you you know there's another one that's that's there about. So it's a it's an amazing era. And uh, and and I got to speak to John Kennedy uh, when I first approached Peter for the idea of the project back in 2014 actually. And um, and he he said he said yes. I the first bloke I went to was John Kennedy. Thankfully and and he. Um, he talks about the the impact that that Peter had obviously, but also um, having to fill his shoes afterwards and did he throw too many eggs in the one basket by not having a backup plan for Hutto and things like that. So it was it was fascinating to get John's take on all that. Um, he, he, You know, he'd play it down and say, oh, well, we, 
people go down with a knee, you find someone else, but then after a while you reflect a bit more and say, well, yeah, if, if he was here, what could have happened? So uh, I was wrapped. I got to speak to the great man about him. And the title of the book actually is A Football Genius, which comes from John Kennedy's mouth. I, I asked him... Uh, I asked him just some stories on Pete, and he said to me this this one quote. Um, I remember at training one night, he had the ball right on the boundary line, and he went bang, and the ball wobbled around and went through for a goal. I said to him, you couldn't do that again. So back he went, and he did it again from the same spot. I thought, you better shut up, Kennedy. He's a football genius. So I just thought that was the perfect title for the book. You've painted a great picture of what a rock star he was as well, and how big in the days when it was really a Victorian game. I mean, obviously, he was a, at a hero in Tasmania before he came to Melbourne to play in the, in the VFL. But you painted a really good picture of just what rock stars the leading VFL players were of the time. And, and I mean, these were guys who had full-time jobs as well. But to just how much they did, how much media they did, it just, it's unheard of these days. Yeah. Um, the sort of the, the demands that were put on these players and how they happily did them all. I guess because it, it, it was a good coin for them in doing a lot of this stuff outside. With no salary cap or anything like that, it was good points and doing whatever they could outside outside their uh, their plane. Yeah, exactly. I mean, Steph Hudson said it costed twenty bucks a week to fill the fridge for food. So if they were getting three or four or five media requests on a weekend, you might do a couple on Channel Seven, go to Channel Nine. There might be uh, TV ringside. You turn up and win an award there, and suddenly you've come away with a pretty handy week on top of you. And obviously, Hutto got a pretty handy sign-on bonus too, but. Um, so you could, for the times, yeah, you could do quite well. And, and the media dubbed it Hudsonitis, uh, which was another potential title for the book because they just the, the mass hysteria around him from, from even before he signed and got to Hawthorne was, was unbelievable. And if you put it on a par with today's players, I, I think he actually gets more coverage than Dusty Martin for his time. It's amazing, really. Um, and yet, Never went to his head. He, he he was actually uncomfortable with the title of the book at first because he said, "I don't want people thinking I'm saying that about myself." But I said, "Everyone else is saying it about you, Pete." So so we have to have it on there. But um, but yeah, he but he said, you know, it was it never blew him. Look, it never got away from him because his dad at an early age said, "If you if you get ahead of yourself, I'm going to you know." Um, pick the balloon, you know, I'm going to bring you back down. So he knew from this, from day one that he wasn't allowed to get ahead of himself. And he's, as any of you who knows him today knows, um, that's still how he, how he lives his life. So he spends a week of the 71 grand final, either training, walking around, doing appearances with Bob Pratt, whose record he was aiming to break in the grand final. And the day before the grand final, he at the Royal Melbourne Show. Yeah. And that's just incredible. Against, against the opponent, Barry, uh, Barry um, Lawrence, yeah. <laughs> Lawrence, yeah. So, uh, quite remarkable. Um, you talk a bit about, in the book, later on, you write about the merger. He was chief executive of Hawthorne at the time of the merger. That was obviously a very divisive time. And you, you, the point is made in the book that for a long time after the merger, Hawthorne people knew of the prominent Hawthorne, Hawthorne supporters knew of the prominent Hawthorne people who was pro-merger and who was anti-merger. Yeah. And it, it carried with them for a long time. And, um, you know, a guy like Brian Coleman, unfairly, is still labelled, uh, is still uh, ridiculed, or not ridiculed, but criticised by some Hawthorne people for being pro-merge, even though he was the most genuine Hawthorne person yep. there was. But um, but Hudson, it, it never stuck. He was obviously pro-merge because he was involved in the club, but it never stuck. It's amazing, isn't it? I'm... Even like the great Alan Jeans and those guys, they got booed and howled down. And I, I don't know what, 
the connection was after that. But certainly with Hutto, it's almost like, yeah, he, he, he come out of it, um, yeah, with no blame at all. He, he copped it a lot, a lot during the merger and it was pretty hairy at times. And his sister talks about that and being at Waverley one day and the fans are banging on the glass and calling for his head. And so it was pretty hairy stuff and obviously just the media and everything. But he he's, he's always been very... Um, Oh, pragmatic about it and, and says, you know, that it had to happen. I was in the position I was in when it came about. We had to deal with it. This was the one way that we thought we could we could uh, keep the club's name going in some capacity. It wasn't exactly what I wanted, but obviously that's just where the club felt we had to go. And so I was just doing my job and, I, you know, I was wrapped that it didn't go through. But um, at the time, I was, uh, I was the one that was in the position that had to do it. So... Um, yeah, so it is interesting, and you do you speak to anyone else about it, and you don't really hear anyone say, "Well, I'm dirty on Hutto because of that," and you know. So, we, whereas you're right, Brian Coleman still uh, is reluctant to speak about that period, so it really, really hurt him, obviously. Um, but Pete's uh, Pete's maintained his halo out of it all. Dan, on uh, uh, episode last year of the Golden Years with Hutto, uh, we managed to have a chat with him. Uh, about a number of things, but one of the things he talked about, uh, which was a roller coaster of emotions, was um, being Paul's dad and going on the journey of, of Paul's career. Uh, do, do you touch on that and that relationship at all throughout the book? Certainly. He says, um, well, he says he's probably his proudest moment in footy was when Paul won the, won the 70, uh, 91 Cup because, you know, the father son and the pressure that he knew that Paul was under and um, and he, he can't really remember much of his 71, so he felt he was almost reliving a grand final moment through through Paul. But, um, that yeah, that remains the first thing he mentions. And, and even when I approached him about the book, he said, you've got to make sure Paul's covered in there. And so he's always very uh, very conscious of making sure. He, I think he understands the, the full weight of what Paul was dealing with, uh, and Paul dealt with it brilliantly. But um, Pete, from, an early, from day one, really, he wasn't, he, he'd obviously advise, advise him when he needed to learn things, but he also took a step back and he was never the angry dad on the sidelines or anything. He'd just sort of wait in the wings and watch and he wouldn't interfere with what the coach was making him do and everything. So he was he was conscious from an early age. And I, I guess when you look at um, Gary Ablett Jr. and Nathan Ablett and, and the contrast in, in the way they handled it, I think, um, I think uh, Pete was very conscious from the start, which really helped to to ease Paul's way. I mean, he still copped it growing up and you're not as good as your dad and all that. But, yeah, when you look at Paul's record on its own, it's, it's a pretty handy career without uh, without even um, having that, that uh, Peter over your shoulder. So uh, Pete's been very, very good with that and he's very, very conscious of always making sure that Paul gets the recognition he deserves as well. And probably the smart thing Peter Hudson did was go to St Kilda for four years to work as Ken Sheldon's Offsider, he was actually he made a big difference to St Kilda. He helped them become a much uh, more professional footy club, and he gave Paul the space to do it. All. Yeah, well, that was one of the big reasons he chose to leave. You're right, just to get out from get Paul out from under his shadow, and and amazing what he did at St Kilda, and yet it ends so so strangely, really, with uh, just some backdoor as we as we've come to know with St Kilda over the years, uh, not always smooth behind off the field, and. Uh, you know, it was a bit of agitating by a few board members and different people that they just felt Pete was Pete and Ken Sheldon were having too big a say. But I mean, 
whatever they were doing was working because they were one of the most exciting teams in the comp to watch at the time and everything was going well on the field. So it's a real shame that it had to end when it did. But um, for the four years they were there, Ken and, and Ken and Hutto are best mates today. Ken uh, Hutto said to him when they first approached the idea, he said, look, when it's time to go, I'm going to go, Ken, you know, I'll never be here to to try and take your spot. So don't ever have to feel that I'm agitating for the coaching role. If, if you get sacked for some reason, I'm gone when you go. You know, So they had a real tight bond from the start. And they, as Pete says, you know, he was seeing Ken a lot more than he was seeing his wife, Steph. So, so he, they were like, uh, and they were the first full-time, um, you know, coach, assistant coach or whatever role Hutto had. Um, that they were the first real full time, so St Kilda were really proactive in doing that, um, and and it was working because they were able to spend a lot more time. Even Jeansy, I think, was still doing work away at, at, with police and all different things. So not everyone was full time at that time. So it was a real bonus for St Kilda, and they reaped the benefits. But as you say, yeah, it um, it died a weird weird death yeah, that- in here. They, they, they only took St Kilda the first finals appearance for 18 years and their first finals win for nearly 20 years, but that wasn't good enough for some people there. But that just shows you the, how they think down at St Kilda. Dan, we have to finish up here. Where can people grab the book? It, it's a couple of weeks away. Um, it, it'll be late, late March, but obviously all your good bookstores. It'll be in the Hawks Nest shop, um, so you can support, support the club that way. Um, there'll be a launch for the book uh, 31st of March, I believe, at uh, the MCG. So we're just finalising that. But, uh, yeah, it'll all start to kick off uh, mid to late March. All right. Well, Trudy, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, noted Hawthorne writer, even though he's the essence historian, Dan Eddy. Thanks for joining. Good luck with the book, and we'll talk to you again Appreciate soon. it. Thanks, Ash. The next book's John Kennedy, so uh, I'll, I'll stick around. Well, we've got Tony Wilson writing Alan James, and we've got... Uh, you writing John Kennedy. So I think uh, Hawthorne supporters and the, and the updated club history is coming out this year as well. So there's plenty of good reading coming for Hawthorne supporters uh, in the next uh, next couple of years.